1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver, deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was like a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been known, even if even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as Christians, we believe that <clears throat> the new life that Jesus offers us, what it, what it means to walk in the newness of life, walk in the light of the resurrection, means that we walk in the ways of love. And so what we're doing for this season of Eastertide, which is these 50 days between Easter and Pentecost, this kind of unique little chunk of the church calendar, uh, where the church reflects on the implications of the resurrection, uh, we're going to talk about and think about and meditate on the, the reality of love. And what better way to what better place to do that than to look at uh, the Bible's most famous chapter on love, which is 1 Corinthians 13. And uh, this is a uh, it's popular for a reason. It's beautiful. It's poetic. This is a passage that, as you know, is often read at weddings. Uh, but it's fascinating. Paul originally wrote these words to be a little bit of a, a kick in the pants for this church that he's writing to, because the church in, in Corinth that he's writing to is a church that was successful, it was influential, very gifted, very skilled, and yet they lacked love. And so Paul's confronting them. And we looked at the first three verses last week where Paul basically says, uh, I don't care how impressive your resume is. I don't care how much money you have. I don't care how influential you are. I don't care how many TikTok followers you have. If you don't have love, you're nothing. And you've missed the whole point of what it means to even be a person. Which then, you know, it raises kind of the next obvious follow-up question, which is, okay, well, if that's, if that's the case, well, what is love? What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. And um, the culture, you know, around us provides lots of answers to that, to that question. What is love? Here's a few. Pat Benatar said, love's a battlefield. Anna from Frozen said that love is an open door. Uh, Imagine Dragons say that love is a Polaroid, whatever that means. Um, Adele says love is a game. And then Amy Winehouse clarified and said, love is a losing game. Uh, Jason Mraz says that love is a four-letter word. 
and then John Mayer and DC Talk came along and clarified and said love is a verb. Um, Ariana Grande says that love is everything. Of course, the Beatles said love is all you need. And Sheryl Crow, maybe the most profound, thought-provoking, deep answer to this question of what is love, she says this, love is a good thing. Sounds like a, a four-year-old wrote that song. Love's a good thing, I think. Uh, but, but anyway, all of that points to the fact that we may be confused collectively on what love even is. And so there's, there's this uh, Swiss theologian who was around in the 20th century. Uh, his name is Hans Urs von Balthasar, which is a mouthful. I put, I put a quote of his at the front of your bulletin. He wrote a book called Love Alone is Credible. But li listen to this quote. Flip there and follow along with me. This is, an amazing, um, this is an amazing thing that he wrote. He writes this. When man encounters the love of God in Christ, not only does he experience what genuine love is, but he's also confronted with the undeniable fact that he, a selfish sinner, does not himself possess true love. Man cannot come to a recognition of this sign without a radical conversion, a conversion not only of the heart, which must in the face of this love confess that it has failed to love until now, but also a conversion of thought, which must relearn what love after all really is. Now that's a mouthful and that quote is loaded, but here's one of the things that he's saying there. He's saying, we don't really even know what love is. We think we do. We think we do because we've read Jane Austen or we've watched The Bachelor or we've you know, listened to Taylor Swift. And so we have an idea. We think we know what love is. But what he's saying is, when you have encountered the love of God that is displayed in Jesus, it, it blows up all of your categories and it makes you rethink everything. It makes you begin to realize, I don't even know if I know what love even is. And so what Paul is doing in this passage is he's showing you this is what it is. He goes through 14 features of love, like 14 different facets of one diamond, and he just holds it up for you. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're just going to look at the first two, the first two that you find in verse four, that love is patient, love is kind. Simple enough. There's your sermon outline. Two points. Love is patient. Love is kind. So let's look, let's look at the first one. Love is patient, which just eliminated 98% of the room, where, you know, you're one word in and you're like, okay, I've already failed. I, I am what you call impatient. Um, when I get stuck in traffic or if I have to go to the, the drive-through at Walgreens and it takes 10 years to get your prescription, you know, I am not okay. And so um, you're one word in and, uh, you know, I've already failed. I'm guessing I'm not alone though. But, but here's what's fascinating. Paul, the word that Paul uses here, he's not talking about the discomfort that you and I might feel from being inconvenienced, the discomfort from uh, circumstances around us. He's talking about the discomfort or the pain that we might experience through relationships, through other people. He's talking about relational pain. What, what does patience look like when you've, been, when you've been hurt by someone else? And so here's a, uh, here's a working definition of what patience, you could say. Here's what, here's what he means by patience. Patience is the ability to endure pain from others rather than give in to it. 
It's the ability to endure pain from others rather than giving into it. There's an, uh, a great old, the old English word that we used to say for patience is the word long-suffering. Great word. It's fallen out of our vocabulary. We need to bring it back because it's amazing. Long-suffering, the ability to suffer, the ability to bear pain for a long amount of time as opposed to being short-fused and quick-tempered and easily triggered. And so the question comes, okay, what does it look like to be long-suffering in the context of relationships when you've experienced pain, when you've experienced hurt? What does it look like if you're a parent and your child has deliberately disobeyed you again? What does it look like um, in the context of work where your coworker keeps making that same mistake over and over and over and over again? What does it look like in the context of, uh, of a relationship or a marriage where you've, that person that you're dating or that you're married to has, has wounded you or has hurt you in the same way that they always have and you've had a million conversations about it over the years and they just did it again? What does patience look like in those moments? Well, Uh, Patience is about how you respond. You may be justifiably hurt, angered, triggered. Patience is you not letting that feeling dictate how you respond. It's you deciding, I'm not going to let the pain that I feel determine how I react to this person, even though there might be a storm swirling inside of me. Because the reality is when, when you and I are either disappointed or hurt, or were let down, or were annoyed, every one of us instinctively go to, you know, fight or flight. Fight mode or flight mode. You, you, you've heard this before. Fight mode, when, you, when, you, when you're hurt and you go to fight mode, this is when you lash back, you retaliate, you go nuclear. You know, this is, uh, this is Harry Potter at the beginning of book five. Remember, he was hurt by Dumbledore. He feels misunderstood by his friends, and he's angsty, and he's moody, and he's frustrated, and so he gets around Ron and Hermione, just unloads on them, just lets them have it, punishes them. This is a familiar thing for some of us. When we get hurt, when we get triggered, we use a lot of words. All the words start coming out, and the words start to get more sharp, more cruel. Um, The words start to get louder. We turn up the volume. We pull out the meticulous records that we've kept in our head of all the ways that this person has hurt me and how they have failed and how they've screwed up. We just, we just go down the list one by 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 one because we want them to feel it. We want to punish them. We go into fight mode. We defend ourselves. We retaliate. We use a lot of words, but you can also punish them by using no words, It's one thing to just unload all these words on them. It's another thing to retract words and to shut down. You go mute, radio silent. You just want them to feel it in the silence. And then when they feel it and they come and they ask you, well, you know, what's wrong? You know what the right answer is. If you're in fight mode, the right answer is nothing. Because what you're doing is I want you to be punished for the pain that you have caused me, and I'm going to give you no option on how to fix it. You just got to sit in stew. Feel it. It's fight mode. Some of us, that's not our instinct. Some of us, our instinct is we go flight mode. We, we retreat. We avoid. We, we, we got to get away from the situation. It's too scary. It's too hard. So we avoid. We, we, we run away. 
For some of us, that means that we wither as a person. We shut down. We try to minimize our own pain that we're feeling because we don't want to suffer. We don't have to deal with this person. We, don't, we certainly don't want to suffer long, so we minimize it on our end. Or uh, one strategy that we can do flight is we apologize quickly. If I can just say I'm sorry, even if I don't mean it, it's kind of like the eject button. It just gets me out of this conflict. It gets me out of the pain that we're all dealing with. I'll just say I'm sorry and it can be over. Just like launching the escape pod gets me out of this thing. Uh, Some of us in these moments, we uh, try to placate the other person with niceness. Um, If we're from certain religious backgrounds, uh, you can manipulate them with quoting scripture or using religious language. You know, when you, know when you go to the doctor and they, you sit on the little table and your legs are draping over and they get the little rubber mallet and they ding your knee and your, your leg does that weird reflex thing? That's what happens inside of every human heart. When you experience pain, disappointment, difficulty, your knee-jerk reflex is to do one of those two things, fight, flight. Sometimes we, we oscillate back and forth between the two in the same moment, in the same conversation. We retreat, then we unload, then we retreat. You know what love does? Love restrains that impulse. Love doesn't let that pain that you feel dictate your response. Love absorbs the pain in that moment, and and love doesn't quickly react where you go fight or you go flight. Rather, what love does is it chooses to stay. You stay engaged, you stay present, you remain calm. Because what you're doing by, by, by suffering long, by bearing the pain in that moment, you're creating time, you're creating space for healing to happen, for the possibility of reconciliation to happen. But you know what that means then? When, when you've experienced pain, what you're doing in that moment, if you choose the route of love and of patience, you are carrying in the same moment pain and you are carrying goodwill towards that person that just caused you pain, where you're saying to yourself, I am going to seek to understand you. I'm going to seek to care for you first, and you're the person that hurt me. Now, to be clear, love or or patience doesn't equal permissiveness. Patience isn't a free pass on abuse, a free pass on injustice. When you're patient with someone, that doesn't mean that you are endorsing the wrong that they are doing, nor does it mean that you are enabling them to continue to do it. There's an um, amazing uh, theologian, scholar, uh, Lewis Smeads, who wrote an entire book on this one chapter of the Bible. And um, it's amazing. I'm going to be quoting him for the next few weeks, so get used to hearing the name Lewis Smeads. But he says in this book, this amazing line, he says, to suffer something is to bear with it even while we reject it. To suffer something is to bear with it while at the same moment you disagree with it, you reject it. You don't affirm it. You don't accept it. You're rejecting it and bearing with it in the same moment. And so here's the question for you. Are you someone who suffers long? When you have been hurt by someone else, can you bear it for the sake of love? 
Or is your first instinct, I demand that you hear me first. I demand that you understand me first. I I demand that you care for me first. Are you able to release that demand and move towards the other person with long suffering? That's one word. Love is patient. How, How did you do? How did we do? You know, you hear all that and you start to meditate on what does it mean to be patient and you realize, yeah, I don't think I know what love even is. But Paul keeps going. There's 13 more. Let's look at the next one. The second one we're going to look at is when when Paul says, okay, love is not just patient, love is also kind. And you may be sitting there and you're thinking, okay, good. I feel better about this one because uh, I may not be a patient person, but you know, I'm not a jerk. I'm genuine. I'm a generally a nice person. And, um, you know, you think, okay, of the two, I'm one for two. It's not bad. You know, 50%. Could be worse. Uh, but, you know, not to disappoint you, but, but when Paul uses the word kindness here, he, he doesn't have in mind the word niceness. You know, he's not thinking of like polite southern Memphis charm. Uh, you, you remember the movie uh, The Help? Um, there's a character in the, in the movie, one of the main characters is this uh, woman named Hilly, who is this, you know, proper, put-together, southern socialite. And, you know, generally, you know, on the surface, she's nice. And she's, you know, she's put together, and she's, you know, the junior league and does all these things. And later in the movie, um, she gets tricked into eating what she thinks is a chocolate pie, only it's not a chocolate pie, it's something really gross. And when she realizes what has happened to her and that everyone, this is going to be exposed and her reputation is at stake and her reputation's in jeopardy, well, the claws come out, as it were. She becomes this vindictive, fierce monster of a person because you realize, okay, she was nice, but she wasn't kind. Kindness is not niceness. So what is kindness then? Well, again, let me give you a... um, Here's kind of a a working definition for you. Kindness is when you move towards someone to support or heal them while expecting nothing in return. It's you moving, proactively moving towards someone to support them, heal them, while at the same time expecting nothing from them. Which means, you know, kindness is when you intentionally move towards someone else with the intent of blessing them, encouraging them, healing them, supporting them, which is a very risky thing to do. That can be taken advantage of. That can be totally misunderstood. You know, kindness is often um, perceived as weakness. This, this is what Friedrich Nietzsche thought. You know, Friedrich Nietzsche, famous um, German philosopher, famous atheist, hated Christianity, One of the reasons why I hated Christianity was because Christianity encouraged kindness in people and encouraged people to move towards need and those who are in poverty and those who are sick and those who are oppressed. And and he said, that's that's crazy. Because in his mind, the way that the world worked is the thing that runs the world is power. And in fact, he would say, isn't that how everybody got here was through natural selection, just the strong eating the weak? And so if you see the weak out there, you see the weak, you see the poor, you see the vulnerable, you see the sick, and you, and you try to take care of them, you're, you're doing something that's unnatural. It's going against the grain of the world. You should do nothing and let natural selection weed these people out. When you move towards people with need in kindness, that is weakness. You're weakening yourself. That's what Nietzsche would say. But here's what I think is 
interesting. He failed to see how much strength is really required to be truly kind. I mean, just, just think about it. It does not take much strength to have opinions, even strong opinions, on what the city of Memphis should do about poverty. You may have very strong opinions. It takes very little strength to just have an idea. It takes very little strength as well to just write a check to send to a nonprofit who's maybe working in a lower income neighborhood or a lower income part of the city. Do you know how much strength it would take for you to move into that part of the city and every single day, day in and day out, give yourself over to caring for the people that are living in that part of the city? That's kindness. That takes enormous amounts of strength. But that's what kindness is. It's purposefully moving towards need, dysfunction, breakdown, sin. Now, here's what... um, Here's where we have to be careful because there's some people here that are just naturally helpers. The way you're wired is you're a helper. You're a, you're a giver. You're an Enneagram 2 type. And uh, we have to be careful because people like that um, can very easily develop a savior complex. And you realize that you move towards need, not out of a disposition of love, but out of this kind of icky codependent thing in you, where I need them to be okay in order for me to be okay. And so kindness often gets corrupted and twisted into looking something like people-pleasing, where you just appease people and tell them what they want to hear and provide for them whatever they want provided for them so that their needs can be taken care of. And and kindness is not people-pleasing. You know, for example, when I was in high school, I was involved in a uh, high school ministry called Young Life. I'm sure you've heard of it. Many, a lot of people have heard of it. It's a high school Christian ministry. And when I was a senior in high school, I remember my Young Life leader, Brian Summerall, inviting me over to his house for lunch one day. And uh, I vividly remember this. I remember driving and picking up Wendy's for both of us to enjoy together. And so I pick up the Wendy's and I drive to his house and I meet him in his back office, uh, just the two of us enjoying, you know, eating our fries, dipping them in the Frosties. And um, at the beginning of that lunch, once we started, he confronts me. He had heard about the stupid stuff that I was doing and, you know, wanted to talk with me about it. And I remember in that moment, the way that he did it, he was um, he was firm you know, he wasn't uh, wavering of like, hey, you know, who am I to tell you how to live your life? You kind of do whatever you want. He's like, no, no, no. You, you are crossing a line here. But the way that he did it, he, he wasn't harsh. He was, uh, he was gentle. He was, I could tell, I trusted that he was for me, that he loved me, that he was, he was, we were having this hard conversation because he wanted what was best for me. And it was, it was one of these um, kind of life-changing, pivotal conversations where you realize Okay, I was, I was really convicted in that moment. I made some changes in my life, and I look back and think, oh, my goodness, if he had not had that conversation with me, I just shudder to think, what would my life have looked like if I just kept going down that road? But he stepped in in kindness, and it was tough. He said tough, hard things I didn't want to hear. It's tough, but it's not harsh. It's not heavy-handed. It's gentle. It's, uh, it, it is, it's, cons- it's concerned with the other person's well-being. And so you start to think about what is kindness, and you begin to realize, okay, ha- have you ever been around a truly kind person? I mean, they're like unicorns. People that are 
compassionate and empathetic, and they, they are, they're purposeful. They move towards other people. They're not afraid to say hard things to people, but not because they're domineering or controlling or manipulative. They say hard things because they genuinely care about the other person's well-being. So maybe the, better, maybe the bigger and most important question is, uh, are you a kind person? Would other people, when they look, about, look at you, talk about you, would they say, this person is kind, she's kind, he is kind? Love is kind. Now, you could um, just, uh, we could end the sermon right here. You know, we've done, we've done what we said we're going to do. Love is patient, love is kind, got it. Let's close in prayer. Uh, but there's one more detail about this passage I want to show you briefly before we're done. And that's this. You know, when you read this passage in English, which is how most of us read it, uh, it looks like all of these descriptions about love, like they're, they're adjectives. They are adjectives. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not rude. Love is not arrogant. Blah, 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 blah. When Paul wrote this in Greek, these were not adjectives. What he wrote in Greek, th- these are all verbs. These are action words. Which means, you know, maybe the better translation, if you were going to translate it really literally, instead of uh, love is patient, a better translation might say love waits patiently, or love suffers long. That's what it does. Instead of love is kind, you could say love shows kindness. In other words, what he's doing here is he's personifying love. Love is this actor that's doing all of this action which is a subtle and creative way for Paul to show you that love is really most truly embodied in a person. And the rest of the Bible is going to claim that that person is most ultimately and fundamentally found in Jesus. Here's why this is really important. Because before this passage is describing what you and I should be, this passage is describing who Jesus already is. Before this passage describes us, it's describing him. So maybe the, most, the best way to read this passage is everywhere you see the word love, replace it with the word Jesus. And so let's just try it. Let's just take those two things. Love is patient. Jesus is patient. Let's think about that for a second. If you're anything like me, you may have wondered, when is God, when is Jesus going to give up on me? I've given him a million reasons to just kind of throw in the towel with Matt. You know, if you think about yourself as an um, investment and you think, okay, God has invested a lot of time and a lot of energy and a lot of resources and a lot of blood and sweat and tears into you and to me. And then you begin to realize he's not getting a great return on this investment. Uh, Why doesn't he just cut his losses and say, I'm out? Here's why. Because Jesus is patient. He's long-suffering. He suffers long with us. We're the ones that throw all of this pain onto him, and we betray him, and we deny him, and we fail him over and over and over. And you know what? It, it, it does not exhaust his love for us. It never runs out. In fact, what's so, you, you see this most beautifully displayed on the cross, because what is the cross showing you? It's showing you that not only was Jesus willing to suffer long with us, he suffers long for us. 
He doesn't just bear with us in our sin. He's actually bearing our sin and our failures and our screw-ups. He's taking it on himself. And in that moment, he does not go into fight mode or flight mode. He doesn't go nuclear and retaliate, nor does he run away from the cross. What does he do? He stays, and he hangs there, and he bears it and just takes it all on himself all of the pain, all of the betrayal, all of the sin on himself, and he doesn't leave. He suffers long. You know why? Because he loves us, and love is long-suffering. And love is kind, and Jesus is kind. I mean, the only, way, the only reason why we know the name Jesus, the only reason why we say that name, even he's a, he's a, you know, a household known name, is because Jesus was willing to move towards need, and dysfunction, and brokenness. The Bible claims he left the glory of heaven and moved towards need in kindness. That's what the gospel is. And so, you know, when you think about the gospel, gospel is good news. But the good news is not, it's not, um, it's, it's a tough pill to swallow because the gospel also says to you and me that we're sinners and that we, we, we can't save ourselves and the world can't fix itself. And uh, our only hope is throwing ourselves at God's mercy. That's a tough pill to swallow. That is tough. That is firm. And yet, if you and I are willing to swallow it, it, it's medicine. Because it shows you that God is merciful, and he is a savior, and he is kind. So you begin to think, okay, the culture around us, you know, I began talking about uh, the culture around us may be confused on what love is. Is it a battlefield? Is it a verb? Is it an open door? Is it a Polaroid? Uh, if you want to know what love is, the Bible says this is the easiest way to know. Look at Jesus. In fact, 1 John 4 makes it pretty explicit. 1 John 4.10 says, this is love. And then it just answers that. You want to know what love is? This is love. Not that we love God but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. I mean, it's pretty astounding when you start to think about it. There is Jesus bearing with me and all of my failures over and over and over and over, and he doesn't quit. There is Jesus moving towards the very people that stabbed him and spit in his face, and he moves towards them with kindness. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. He's not running. He's not retaliating. He's extending mercy. He's extending kindness. And when you know that that kindness and that love is directed at you, it cracks you open. It has to. I mean, it's like a sledge. It's like taking a sledgehammer to a walnut. It breaks it open so that his love might flood in more and more and more. And as you taste and see and experience what this kind of transcendent, mysterious, unimaginable love is, is that's how you relearn it yourself in your own relationships. And so what it looks like is you, you move out into the world and somebody else hurts you. And you begin to think to yourself, okay, I have done much worse to Jesus and he suffered long with me. So I can suffer long with this person. Jesus has bared with me, born with me, therefore I can bear it with them. Uh, here is, is need, here is dysfunction. I see somebody wrecking their life, and I, I was in a much worse place, and Jesus was kind towards me, so I can be kind towards them. I can move towards them in kindness. 
That's how it works. We relearn what live as we, we relearn what love is as we experience it ourselves. Final thought. You know, the expression, you've heard the expression, um, hurt people hurt people. This expression is also true. Loved people love people. And that's what the gospel tells you, is that you are one who is beloved. Amen. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would give us um, eyes and ears and even an appetite to drink deeply and to feast greatly upon your love. Would you so fill us that we might be the kind of people that know and rest and savor your love for us and so um, are transformed into people who love others well. Help us to be people who are patient. Help us to be people who are kind as you have been patient and kind towards us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.